Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel is an American author. His books include Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism and Notes from the Edge Times. Through his research, Jen, firstly I'm going to say that the punctuation there, that should be a full stop. Because that dash, I saw oh, that dash coming. Oh, I actually had a look at that dash. What do you mean? Uh, and I thought, that's not right. But then I thought, but it's not a book or anything. <laughs> <laughs> you you stopped to reflect Cause, cause and then it's, just, a, it's like a script it's a script it's like just something to tell you the words jenny dash isn't too upsetting is it what would you wrong. do what does it make you do a dash it tells you that what's coming next is connected to what you've just said it is it's Daniel Finchbank. <laughs> <laughs> his thoughts jenny <laughs> i've never seen a more obvious example for the grammar the, is always my weak point for me and maths. Well, you might also want to look at the area of personality, <laughs> I'll say. But a dash is yeah. like, like you go sort of like, uh, dash is sort of like, um, Russell Brand is one of the world's best comedians. Dash. Dash. A great guy all round. <laughs> yeah, but this is dash, shamanic values. That's <laughs> what this is, right? And notes from the it's edge the times. Le it's the least bad typo I've had. This is what should be there, is a full stop, okay. all right? It should be this, a psychedelic heart of contemporary shamanism and notes from the edge times, full well, stop, yeah. capital T. <laughs> Through his research, yeah. here's a new thought. Yeah. Through his research. But I, I like a dash. Yeah, I like a dash, Jen. You don't just put them everywhere. You don't just dash, dash. It's only all one. <laughs> but it's not right. So I say there's only one murder. But you can't. You always say things aren't real when someone tells you something's not right. Do I, Jenny? Yeah. What like? Give me one language. Ex it's not real, is it? It's no matter. Yeah. yeah, but that would be. What if I say some sort of terrible, insensitive? Like a joke, joke, and it's like it's just sounds in air vibrating. Right, we have, I, yeah, but Jen, we're very different people. Look, through his research, can I finish the rest of this yeah. intro that you've cut and pasted from Wikipedia? And amended it. It's not from Wikipedia. Through his, it is. through his research, here's a new sentence for you guys. Through his research, he's developed the hypothesis that shamanic and mystical views of reality have validity and that the modern world has forfeited an understanding of intuitive aspects of being in pursuit of rational materialism. Beautiful bit of writing. Can't credit Jenny for that, except for this erroneous dash, this arrant and there, dash. Maybe a few other bits in it. I can't remember which bit. This otios <laughs> dash. What do you think of the word otios? I don't know what that means. Pointless, couldn't it? Did you learn that recently? I haven't heard you say it before. I just learned it. Yeah. I learned it on holiday. <laughs> People in the Maldives saying Otios. Yeah, every time they saw me, Otios. They said, Otios. <laughs> and I was reading a book. That's like when you went to your ossified stage. Ossified. And you I'm said, out. I moved out of that. Yeah, that was like three years ago. And it still pops up, but you really, really liked it for a while. Yeah, Otios now. But it's, the thing is, when I learn, like, it's no use just learning a new word. There's plenty of new words on my phone that I know. But the fact is, is are they properly in the vocab? The answer is no. They're not in the vocab till you, um, you know, till you're sort of confidently saying them. Penumbra, that means gloom. Isn't that lovely? Ah, this I learned off of Robert McFarlane. Empyrean, highest cosmological state. Now, I should be saying M that. or M. Huh? M or M. Empyre M, I reckon. Empyrean. It's an E. Oh, okay. Empyrean, highest cosmological states. I mean, that, I should be saying that all the time, but I need to hear in context yeah. a few more times. What would you put it before? Um, I think he's using it as an adjective. Look, it's a state of light and fire. 
Emprian. Hold on a minute. I've not been saying it right all those other times. <laughs> Empyrean. 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 Yeah. Empyrean. Empyrean. Is it less anything to do with empire? No, I don't think so, because that's a Y afterwards. It's E-M-P-Y-R-E-A-N. Oh. Empyrean. And it's not empire. That's why it's, it's a confusing word written yeah. down. I'd like to have Robert McFarlane maybe teach us a bit more about that. <laughs> that word. <laughs> Come podcast. on and teach us a bit about it, will you? Yeah. I love him. I know. Did you go for a walk yet? Of course not. Oh. I haven't been anywhere. So you got banged up, did you? Yeah, in Spain. I can still hear the phlegm flying <laughs> yeah. about in there in Sometimes your gullet. I need to cough. I had a very husky voice. It sounded nice. Why do you know? Uh, I just thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> what was you listening to you? Where were you um, listening to yourself? Well, it's just me and my own. So, so who, what were you <laughs> saying to yourself? I was on the phone to someone, I think. And you were on the phone <laughs> to someone and you were thinking, oh, look, I sound nice. Yeah. Was that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, no one else is going to compliment me, though two people did. You didn't send me any messages. You didn't send me any messages. I did think about you once. So why didn't you send a message? <laughs> I thought, oh, Russell hasn't sent me a message. <laughs> why didn't you send me a message? I don't send anyone messages, really. I'm pretty bad at it. You should have sent me a message. <laughs> were you thinking what, about that? What were we doing? Yeah. What were we doing on Christmas Day? I was with my family. In <laughs> Ireland? I actually slept until midday. That was nice. It's pronounced midday. It's not midday. <laughs> what? Midday. Midday. It's midday. Not midday. It's midday. Not midday. Is it, Jen? Midday. Oh, dear. <laughs> what, you were in Dublin, were you? Yeah. Although I thought I had COVID, so I stayed in the hotel for two days. Which one? The one I stayed in last year. You two's one? No, it's uh, the Hyatt Centric and the Liberties. I've had a letter from them. <laughs> it's great. back. I really like it though. They said they prefer if you didn't come again. <laughs> they, they said they've closed that room off permanent. No. <laughs> They'd rather lose the revenue, they said. People keep complaining of a haunting, a husky oh. haunting, they oh. say, ever since you've been in there. No. <laughs> yeah, gone well. And he was in Spain. What yeah. did you do when you were isolated? Were you actually in a room? Did you have a balcony? Did you go outside? What was it like? I had a balcony, yeah. No, I didn't have a balcony. Well, I got it, and then I sw switched hotels. Where to? Without a balcony? Yeah. Why? It was a nicer room. But without a balcony? Yeah, but the other one had a balcony. I didn't do anything on it. I wouldn't go over to it and go out to it. Why? It's just standing, and how long are you supposed to stand there for? 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> it's the same when I went to the beach. How long am I supposed to sit here? You lay a towel down. You bring a book. I didn't have a book. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> so then I lie there and Did I Did you have a towel? No. You I did get went... in the sea actually one of the days and I did have a towel. Where it was freezing. Is... Was it, mate? Yeah. Where in Spain was you? Malaga. It's really nice. It's got nice streets. Streets? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do on those streets? They're like shiny. They're like they're almost like marble. Oh, yeah. yeah it's really like... nice. Sometimes you go to a Spanish town, it's very sort of modern and shiny yeah, it's like nice. that. And yeah. then there's a bit that all looks ancient. Yeah, that's what Malaga's like. It's very nice. Good old Spain. Yeah. All right. We've got some exciting projects coming up this year, Jenny May. <laughs> Very exciting indeed. But before that, before we get into Daniel Pinchbeck, who I'm sure you're going to love if you haven't spooled forward like the this, like many of you do. Yeah. Hmm? That Spanish conversation was... I'd have spooled right through yeah. that. Oh. Um, this is a comment on Dr. Joe Dispenza, a previous episode of our show. <laughs> now time for comments. <laughs> Ivan Oris. Thank you. I've been salivating... And there's this emoji, a salivating emoji. I've not seen that before. 
I've been. Why are you taking this jumper off, Jen? Because I'm too warm. I, I've been salivating. <laughs> is it, I thought it was because I said salivating. <laughs> no. I've been salivating about the thought of this interview. Dispenser's work is mind blowing. His books are incredible. They give us an incredible insight into meditation and quantum physics. Great stuff, Russell Brand. Thanks, Ivan or is. Lisha Koenig. Lisha Koenig. I'd join Joe's cult if he started one. Crying emoji. Disloyal to my cult. Listener shout outs and Apple reviews. Listener shout outs. Jess Gildenwand. Hello, friends. I'm so thankful I found you. I'm listening to our three Luminary podcasts a day. I'm certain I will re-listen, re-listen to it when I'm through. Thank you, Jess Gildenvan. Do you that's a Dutch person? Oh. I felt that the they were Dutch from everything they said there. Um, here's some other things I can tell you, though, you lovely people. If you're listening to Under the Skin, you should listen to Above the Noise, my meditation podcast. It's fantastic. And if you've not got your tickets for my tour yet, from January to May, I'm on tour. Particularly, and I know this is a real shot in the dark, if you're in Scunthorpe, because everything else is selling out really well. Where Scunthorpe, is that again? 80% sold out. Scunny, Did we do across that the Humber Bridge. Did we do Scunthorpe before? I don't remember, I remember Jen. it being Grimsby and I remember Hull. Yeah, I remember Grimo and Hull. I don't remember Scunthorpe. But you can see me there if you want to. And if you've bought tickets to Scunthorpe as a result of this show, let me know because I'll be grateful to you. Like that lad, you know that lad, you know, the was he Irish, that lad? Like a lad who, he came up to me in Brighton and, he, and I t- said something like, listen, mate, if you're listening, go bing, bang, bong or something like that. And he did it. He came up to me and went bing, bang, bong. Like, and it was, oh, wow. I felt like reality collapsing into a sort of a single pixel, like as if it had all unfolded from a, a point the size of a pinhead, which is the Big Bang Theory, really, isn't it? Like that all reality was a, a highly weird stuff dense happens, thing. A lot of weird stuff happens, doesn't it? Yeah, a lot of weird stuff. A lot of weird stuff happens, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right, Jen. That's right. A lot of weird stuff's happening. Now, join my mailing list where you'll get sent information on the regular, uh, telling you what I'm doing, where I'm going, what I'm reading, what other podcasts I'm listening to, although I don't listen to many others because I wouldn't like to be disloyal to this one. Yeah. Uh, sign up to my mailing list and also look at my YouTube channel with some fantastic content on there brilliant videos insightful news analysis you'll enjoy it very much and also listen to the Awakening channel or watch the Awakening channel loads of uh, insight and well-being but now Daniel Pinchbeck is a great guest he's a <laughs> laugh Jen Daniel's a great guest I've known him a long time Daniel he has a lot of insight into what I would call edgeland ideology edgeland. yeah edgeland metaphysics he talks about he talks about shamanism he was into psychedelics before most people he sort of brilliantly bridges the gap between like the the beats and the sort of which you could say is you know i don't know as far as i know a significant moment in the origins of the countercultural movement as at least as we sort of understand it you know becoming as it did the hippies rock and roll etc etc so he he's got good understanding of countercultural movements and how eastern mysticism and sort of western pop ideology fuse he's good at looking at indigenous cultures and what uh, truths we can derive from that and he's good at looking at what ideas we can harvest and harness from um, non-mainstream resources to try to find an alternative way of living at a very difficult and challenging time for the world so i think daniel compiles and collates and presents a lot of important ideas his mailing list is great you should sign up for daniel pinchbeck's mailing list if you're not on it i find it to be a really good resource i always read his stuff all right that's a pretty responsible intro isn't it professional gen 
Not just rabbiting on about being in Spain you asked me about and not Spain. going to a balcony. You asked me about Spain. I went to a balcony. How long did you stay do on a balcony? You ever, do you find Jonathan Van Ness attractive? Yeah, a bit, yeah. Why did you ask that? Because <laughs> I went to a bar on my own at the end of the trip once I was negative. And the mm. guy who I was convinced was gay then ended up chatting me up and he was like a thinner Jonathan Van Ness. But like... Yeah, I like Jonathan Van Ness quite a lot. But I like all, pretty much all of them queer eye guys. Yeah, he was like him. Obviously, I love... Uh, who's the black geezer that came on Karamo. here? Love him. I love the British, Indian, or Pakistani-looking guy. You should know this. You're more of a fan than Tan. me. Tan. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. But Jonathan reminds me mostly of myself. Yeah. Which I love, obviously. This guy probably... But I think he's bright and lovely. Yeah. I mean... Look like if I, I was, guess he looked like I thought of Jonathan. Maybe he looks like you. I don't know. Of course he does. <laughs> if he's a handsome fella, that's exactly what's floating your boat. Now, like as you know, probably if I was going to get married to a man for some reason, you know, I'd probably go for a nice macho man. Yeah, but yeah. bit of fun on the balcon. Yeah, this guy wasn't as macho. I was convinced he was there with his boyfriend. Well, didn't he say he was not gay? Or well, I was like, is that not your boyfriend? And he said, like, that's my brother. Oh, what did, did you get off of him? No, but he tried to come to my hotel room. Why did you say no? Because I'd prefer to wake up alone. God, Jen. <laughs> then have to deal with that energy. Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? The old single life of promiscuity, Jen. It's not for everyone. Then you wake up and like, that person's there. Who's this little sauce with, pot? Yeah, and then how do you tell them to go away? Well, I think if you're a female, you just go... I'm, I can't just go I'm in my room. Oh, you're gonna no. You, you just, just go, go get out. Uh, oh, <laughs> go, mate. And no, we're not mate. Senor <laughs> Roman. Uh, huh? His name is Roman. Roman. That's enough now, mate. Although, forgive the inquiry, but d the next day maybe you can have another. I didn't no? find him intriguing enough for him to not you be clothed. You need enough intrigue. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. The reality, isn't it? The next day, you think too much reality. Many of us are pursuing a kind of transcendent, fantastic experience through the erotic, which sometimes it does deliver, but often it becomes all too real, doesn't it? It's like I you're confronted that, yeah. with a, a, what do I want to call a corporeal experience, the body, just the body and its realness. Yeah. Well, that's life. <laughs> Daniel Pinchbeck. Pinchbeck. <laughs> Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Daniel Pinchbeck, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. It's lovely to see you. Great to see you too. It's been a while. I've been yeah, it's been ages. I've been I've been um I've been subs like sub I subscribe to your mailing list, or maybe I don't in a monetized way, which I should do because I really really love your content. You know, it's like you know when you subscribe, sort of it's it's really a tremendous effort, as I know, because this is a a, a paywalled piece of content that we're participating in right now. That it's a, a stupendous effort to cough up some money to join creators on their journey into creativity, but nonetheless, I really love your mailing list. I've recently recently you did essays on anarchism and communism and permutating modern forms of them and the history of those ideas and as a result of uh, stuff i read on your uh, mailing list i reread mark fisher the 
great English uh, academic and philosopher who, who writes a lot about communism from a, I don't know, a sort of modern or postmodern, if such a thing is possible, perspective. And I read, um, and I'm reading uh, Bernardo Kastrup's book on, um, you know, more than allegory, which is sort of about sort of, well, these are some of the things I want to talk to you about. And Darren Allen's book, 33, all of this. So I'm getting a lot of good uh, insights and stuff to read from your mailing list, mate. And I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, I sometimes talk about in, in my podcasts or uh, videos even, like uh, recently I mentioned the other day, like, you know, Breaking Open the Head and The Return of Quetzalcoatl, some of your books and stuff. And I wonder how you feel at the moment, Daniel, broadly speaking, about, well, let me, let's touch on a few things. The emergence of psychedelics into the sort of the mainstream space, both as a sort of mental health remedy and a kind of cultural phenomenon and figures that I know you've long admired, like McKenna becoming sort of I don't know, perhaps more broadly embraced. And I wonder what you think as well. And, you know, your answer can take as long as you want here. I've had people speak for 30, 40 minutes after my first question because of the rambling nature of my inquiry uh, about how you feel about the kind of recent global regulations and changes and the kind of moral and ethical questions that it poses to us. So there's some things for you to jump into. Uh, okay, maybe I'll start with the first one, and you can remind me what the second one was later. I mean, um, well, yeah. I mean, I, on, on one level, it's amazing. I mean, I wrote, as you said, "Breaking Open the Head," that came out in two thousand two, and before I wrote that book, I was kind of a you know skeptic, uh, materialist, uh, New York journalist, but I was suffering kind of like a miserable existential emergency. And I remember that I'd had some psychedelic experiences in college that were the only experiences. That it seemed to indicate, you know, maybe there were other dimensions of consciousness or or reality that that you know our world had ignored and avoided. So um, so yeah, so I ended up you know going to Africa, doing the aboga initiation in Gabon, and going to the Amazon, visiting a indigenous community called the Sequoia, visiting the Mazatecs, and so on, and um, you know wrote that first book, uh, and also had all these experiences that were. Kind of psychic, uh, paranormal, telepathic, synchronistic. I mean, I basically my whole worldview shifted to uh, yeah. Can I, 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 can I raised hand. Can I just <laughs> ask you about some of like if you could just give in a few examples of the synchronistic and apparently paranormal experiences, just like you know, just to give us a bit of juice. Yeah, I mean, one that, one that I often you know mention is uh, when I went to do this iboga work with the Bwiti. Iboga is a root bark in West Africa. That uh, has a lot of anti-addictive properties, as well as being a very visionary substance that takes like 20 hours and so on. Uh, trip is a very long trip. Uh, the, the second experience I had with it, one of the uh, shamans, you know, that's a, you know, a word we use for them. They're called Nagangas down there from the tribe, said that he could see the spirit of my mother's mother hovering around me, that she had died very recently and that you know she still loved me very much, but she was kind of like overprotective, and she wasn't allowing me to go into different parts of the spirit world. And I mean, I hadn't told anybody there about my background. I mean, these guys were speaking to a translator, and it was true that my mother's mother, which was the only grandparent I had known, had passed away within a year. So that just you know became one of many instances where, where I began to realize that through you know this these kind of practices and, and, and te techniques in a way, technologies you could call them. Uh, th these guys were able to access kind of kind of uh, other levels of information, like transpersonal levels of information. Mm. Um, but anyway, so um, I'm talk about much. how it's penetrated the culture in the years since you've been writing about it, and if you wanted to, how that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so when that book came out, it was like you couldn't actually talk about psychedelics. This was like 2002. 
uh, in um, you know New York City in media circles without getting sort of ridiculed. But honestly, I was afraid when I published that book that I would get like stopped on airplanes or you know like uh, like it would have like negative personal consequences. So it's been kind of amazing, and I, I think that book was one of like a few seeds in, in the culture. Another one was. DMT, the spirit molecule by Rick Strassman. Another one was Rick Doblin and MAPS that helped to kind of reframe uh, psychedelics for another generation. And uh, yeah, since then, in the last 10 years, certainly we've seen an unbelievable explosion of uh, incredible research, validating a lot of what people had already understood back in the 60s. And um, now we're kind of seeing this new phase of the commodification, commercialization of, of psychedelics, you know, even though the legal structures aren't really um, there yet. I mean, the, the, you know, legal, legally, they're mostly still negative, uh, but we're seeing, you know, with ketamine, that's been sort of legalized for therapy. Um, psilocybin is being decriminalized in, in certain areas in the U.S. Uh, but I still have some questions because um, for me, the uh, I mean, I understand that for the psychedelic movement to, to achieve mainstream success, uh, it required kind of, um, you know, putting it into a context that science, science could understand and mental health could understand, that that was the pathway to social acceptance. Uh, for me, there's much more puzzling, uh, mysterious, in some ways dangerous, and, and in some ways miraculous aspects uh, to these experiences that, that are not just about, you know, the individual feeling better or even reckoning with trauma, um, you know, so, so, so um, you know, and I think some of that is being explored also, and like our, our friend David Luke uh, is a parapsychologist who's been, you know, looking at LSD and psychic experience and so on. I mean, um, uh, you know, they've been starting to redo studies on uh, psychedelics and creativity, uh, looking at how um, you, know, you can actually see um, if you if you do like brain scans of people on high dose psychedelics, uh, how it uh, activates like these different areas of the brain light up like Christmas trees and kind of um, connect in different ways, open new paths of connection. So it makes sense that they would support, uh, you know, creative thinking, creative breakthroughs and so on. Uh, and then, and then another aspect of it is, I, th I think that you know there are dangers to psychedelics. I mean, and and you know, I mean, another aspect which I addressed in my work, uh, which you know is is um, I guess more complex, is I actually you know my own experiences have indicated that this kind of um, you know esoteric or occult reality of like other dimensions, spirits, you know, beings, every archetypes, everyone to, to, to describe them uh has some type of uh, validity and um that's something that you know I, I don't think that we have within the scientific paradigm a way to handle that's why i love like bernardo castrop's work because i think um kind of uh, beginning to have a really logical and rational understanding of how the discoveries of quantum physics support what he talks about as idealism or analytic idealism uh, might allow us to really open the, the 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 periscope, you know, in terms of our in terms of our thinking and our cultural constructs. Thanks, mate. What Bernardo Castro says in that book, as far as you know, I've not read all of it. I'm just reading it now. That interests me, and what seems to interest you is the possibility of alloying spiritual discovery and the universal principles that appear to um, be present sometimes in these kind of investigations, whether they're psychedelic or sort of meditative, 
in order to reform society. That it's not just, um, you know, see, one of the concerns that I sort of have about the sort of a rise in interest around psychedelics is that it's sort of bolted onto utility, you know, in order that we might become better consumers or, you know, that that we can remedy very particular psychological or, you know, problems these we can marginally and in a limited limited way facilitate the use of these drugs but what i'm interested in and what i feel like you're interested in daniel what it seemed to me that you've always been interested in is from where do we get both the energy and the ideology required to reorganize society when people seem to be either apathetic or nihilistic and despondent when power seems so centralized when the ability to communicate seems to be being derailed when alternative systems are continually dismissed when there is downright cynicism about the possibility for change when we've all been sort of spellbound hypnotized and kind of strung up on a wire of the the, the suspended in this state of um you know frozen impossibility how how do these like you know your investigation into anarchism and sort of acid communism and like these sort of these reformed leftist ideas meet with the kind of um, investigations into spaces that are difficult to uh, ascertain, understand, and certainly describe in the kind of non-century world? Yeah, it's a really I mean profound question, and it's something I, I keep. Um kind of like uh, trying to find the best way to articulate uh, in, in written form in, in my essays. I mean, um, so I, I feel that, uh, you know, where we're at right now with post-industrial capitalism is, is largely based on a materialist, scientific materialist, rationalist paradigm that developed over the last several hundred years that crescendoed in the late 19th century with Nietzsche declaring God is dead, you know, and, and somehow this kind of uh, metaphysics of uh, nihilism in a way uh, was linked to the sort of, you know, mercantilism, you know, sort of, you know, monomaniacal focus on productivity and, and economic growth and so on, uh, which not only inspired, you know, the West and Europe to kind of, you know, in some ways conquer the world, but now we also see like, you know, China and India have, have absorbed, you know, that, that whole, you know, sort of superstructure of, of approach to like everything is about economic development and, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, do the neoliberal thing as fast as we can also. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're having this collective realization or reckoning that the earth cannot handle, you know, more Americas, you know, you know, and, and, and the whole thing is about to tip over. Um, but I think that we're not going to be able to address, you know, and even if you took people like, um, you know, Elon Musk and so on, I mean, the, the sort of technological singularity that's become kind of like the, you know, kind of religious vision, let's say, of like Silicon Valley is that, um, you know, materialist technology is kind of uh, ha almost has a will of its own, uh, you know, and, and basically the, the you know, the, the goal is to just accelerate technology because that could allow for a kind of immortality you know, where the ego could become immortalized, whether in digital form or through, you know, physical immortality with like nanobots as Ray Kurzweil writes around, but it's all still coming from this materialist kind of uh, egoic uh, projection, you know? So, so, so it would be with, uh, if, if, if we fully kind of, um, how can I say this? 
uh, integrate, let's say, this idealist idea that it's actually all consciousness, that we are expressions and projections of this underlying indivisible instinctive consciousness that's kind of exploring its own creative capacities, playing with its own creative capacities, you know, then, then first of all, you know, you know, we are that, you know, you are that, I am that, you know, probably death is not the end because if we're actually, you know, on some level, the consciousness that's creating this whole game, you know, we're going to create other games and, and play in other ways. And there's going to be, you know, endless opportunities to learn, learn and develop and grow, you know, as long as you want to stay in the, in, in the illusion. Uh, so I think it, it would be a total shift in, in how um, we think about ourselves and other people, uh, because obviously everybody is basically just us. You know, they're they're also an expression of this infinite consciousness that's exploring its creative capacities, and so it would kind of do away with the you know kind of uh, you know effort to dominate and exploit. Uh, those would just become uninteresting, and this whole idea that the sort of the the, the function and purpose of life is this you know exploration exploration of this creative playful consciousness it would be such a much more joyful place to be existing from that if the west was to pick up on that and begin to you know integrate that then i also believe that china would get the bug and india would get the bug like the whole world would just move into a different uh, realization while there are um suggestions to take your point earlier that India and China are emulating, if not um, in literal political terms, in terms of productivity, neoliberalist ideologies at the very time that neoliberalism is plainly failing, even in its own terms, when free market capitalism is a kind of um, bolted together hydra incapable of delivering in the manner that its own ideology su suggests is possible according to its own template. It seems that I don't want to fall into the trap of feeling of suggesting there is only one line of progression and that China and India and the West ought be on this one line that can be tracked, that there are sort of stations on the road of progression. But it is clear that we're at some sort of ideological impasse. And I'm aware that, you know, all the time people write stuff like that. You can find someone writing 200 years ago saying, this is crisis, technology is out of control. We've become prisoners of luxury, you know, and you find out that it's written 500 years ago or whatever. Or even there's things, I think, in Lao Tzu that you read and like it just sounds like someone talking like about right now. So perhaps these ideas are not contemporaneous. Perhaps they're universal. Perhaps they're constant. But no... Where I feel we are and what I feel our challenge is, is firstly to create a kind of awareness about the degree of corruption of our current institutions and optimism about the possibility of change and the introduction of means like of like this is what it might be like i know no no culture that has preceded ours no society that has preceded ours has done so with a blueprint although of course there are ideology ideologies and most obviously and that that comes to mind mostly is you know the failed social experiments of fascism and communism in the in the in, in the last century although perhaps you would say you to one degree or another we're progressing still from those places how could we not be progressing from there they did happen they weren't in sort of entirely abandoned you can chart the lineage and progress of both those ideals culturally now i suppose what i'm um i suppose real interested in daniel is what i'm really interested in is creating an accessible and relevant contemporary ideology that might inspire people sufficiently for them to take the necessary steps to walk away from their own lives to to, to walk away from their 
their, their personal imprisonment. I suppose some questions that might um, direct your thinking and our chat might be like, I know there is no evidence that consciousness is um, like non-local and proceeds um, in the you know matter as opposed to evolving arbitrarily, or if not arbitrarily, perhaps uh, deliberately, you know, from matter. What what suggestions are there that consciousness might precede matter? And if this is true, how can this be a part of a kind of um, rekindling of awe and recognition of divinity? Well, I mean, go, go, I mean, I want to go back to the first part of what you just spoke about. But I mean, you can do I mean, what you want. The second part, yeah, conscious being non-local. I mean, uh, I think Castrop is doing a great job, you know, on that front. I mean, essentially, you know, the hard problem of consciousness postulates that somewhere in like, you know, the you know microfilaments of the brain or in the sort of, you know, synaptical connections of the brain, we're going to locate consciousness. And, and actually, we haven't really been able to, to do that at all. And, um, you know, Castro just points out that, 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 that a lot of the paradoxes uh, dissolve, uh, you know, if, if we start from the perspective that, that the whole thing is actually consciousness, that, that, you know, what we experience as physical, you know, matter and, and so on is actually just uh, aspects of consciousness. The only thing that we really know for certain is our own subjective awareness and, and everything else is, um, you know, sort of an, an inference in a way, right? Um, but he, he does a better job that I'm going to do at, at, at logically like formalizing that. But to me, that's it's, it, it feels very um, reasonable. And I actually feel on pretty stable and solid ground, um, you know, in terms of the experiences that I've had and, and, and everything else that so that makes sense. So I, I feel that, I, you know, I, I, you know I, I don't know if you remember years ago, we, we tried to organize a, a thing. We had a brain trust meeting with you in New York. And, and for me, it's like... Um, you know, some group or some or some you know area. You know that ha there has to be actually an organizing. Like, like not most people aren't able to organize very much for themselves, but they can participate in something if if the if the if it if the bar for participation is kind of low. Like, there's a movement that's already happening. So, like years ago, there was like the Zeitgeist social movement. There was Transition Town. Obviously, there was like the Occupy movements. There was an, I started one called the Evolver Network, where we had like. 70 local groups at a certain point. So, you know, some somebody like you who has the charisma and leadership potential or you in coalition with a number of other people, you know, could, could create some kind of template where local communities gather uh, to uh, actually, you know, raise consciousness, which was a big idea of the 60s that's kind of, that's kind of vanished. Uh, and obviously with COVID, it even became harder to imagine people coming together, but, you know, one way or another that that's shifting again. But if people were, were coming together, you know, and, and there was some kind of like think tank or intellectual brain trust, that was like, okay, like here are tools for, you know, local economy. Uh, here are, you know, tools for, you know, composting for how your, your locality can, you know, deal with the energy issues and so on. I think, I think it might help people to start feeling very empowered, you know? Um, Do you think, Daniel, that decentralization of power is a significant component in any meaningful change? Yeah, I think that, um, I, I mean, so, I mean, it, with the whole, I mean, I've just been writing right now about Bitcoin and, and blockchain and Ethereum. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a kind of ideological zealotry around decentralization, uh, which I'm a little suspicious of also. I think it's probably about finding the uh, the proper juncture between you know decentralization and some types of healthy you know authority structures um, you know where authority is like um, 
like Herbert, Herbert Marcuse, what was the distinction he made? Like kind of um, rational authority and irrational authority. You know, there are people who, are, who know more and are better in certain domains. And, and those are the people you want to be able to make decisions in those domains. Uh, but they're not necessarily the ones who should make decisions in, in all domains. You know, I mean, uh, Bill Gates was obviously a genius when it came to, you know, operating systems and, and capitalist structures. That, that doesn't mean he's like the ultimate genius when it comes to like how farmland should be you know, used or how vaccines should be distributed or, or, or whatever, you know, how patent law should be constructed even. So, um, yeah, so, so I think it's finding the juncture between decentralization and some type of, you know, somewhat centralized authority structure with, with, a, with a strong back and forth in between. And then, you know, you could say the ultimate might be, you know, Bakunin, like total liberty, total like decentralization, total autonomy and sovereignty. But we'd actually have to chart a plan to get there. You know, and this is also where I think the left uh, has been kind of... Um, a failure, let's say, uh, whereas the right has really, really strategized. Like if you read, um, there's this great book called Inventing the Future, uh, which looks at how kind of what we need is a uh, counter hegemonic project to uh, kind of counter neoliberalism. But it also looks at how neoliberalism was actually formulated uh, explicitly as a, as a project by these um, economists, intellectuals, starting back in the 40s with this Mont Pelerin society. And then there Okay, we're going to need think tanks, we're going to need intellectuals, we're going to need this, we're going to need that, you know, and then they built the, the infrastructure that then spread those ideas. And then in the 60s, if you read the book Dark Money by Jane Meyer, she looks at how the Koch brothers um, engineered their ideological project. They were, they, you know, they were like, okay, we don't like what's happening with civil liberties. We don't like what's happening with public education. You know, we don't like that the rich are getting taxed more. We want to roll this back. But we, can, we can't do it right away. So first, they got a group of people together who shared their values and views, and they, and they reached a deeper coherence about, about you know, what they'll agreed upon. And then they, they, they approached like a corporate takeover. And this might take 20, this might take 30 years. We're going to need to have economics departments. We're going to fund intellectuals like Charles Murray, who wrote, I don't know if you remember him. Uh, the Koch brothers through like one of those like Cato Foundation or Heritage funded people like that. They, you know, Charles Murray was arguing that uh, IQ vectors relate to race. You know, so if you can then sort of say that, you know, that, that like black people have a less IQ you know, tendency than white people than, or Asians, then you can sort of justify removing social services from them and so on. So it was a very complex um, project that was handled like a corporate takeover. Do you think these kind of projects are consistent and ongoing, mate? Sometimes I feel that when intellectuals like uh, who actually has been on this show and I like him, Yuval Noah Harari or Steven Pinker, who hasn't been on the show, sometimes I find in um, their work that it kind of points to a sort of support for existing power structures. And I think, oh, I wonder if this book became so successful and positive, not because of the many th things that are brilliant in something like Sapiens, it's like an amazing book, but because when you read it, you feel like, oh, this is inevitable that things are like this and they should stay like this, you know, like, but... Exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. I mean, some of it has to do with um, psychological structures. Like some people are more, you know, like pessimistic. I mean, some people are more, you know even if they're progressive in some ways, have some forms of conservatism. I mean, yeah, so so Harari's uh, tonality and his work and his underlying message work perfectly well for neoliberalism. I mean, his vision of the future is, 
a few, you know, you have the elites in control and everybody else is in an immersive virtual reality, basically the metaverse version. So of course he's like Obama's favorite philosopher. I'm sure like, you know, Zuckerberg appreciates him and so on, you know, so, and you know, whether or not he's, I, mean, I don't know him, you know, probably is, is a good guy, but for me, he's also coming out of, out of this materialist construct. Like, I don't think he's broken free of that, even though I know he's into meditation and so on. So yeah, these things are kind of subtle, but there, there is a way that power gravitates to those voices that support, you know, it, 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 its workings and its structure. Mm. Yes. Now this prof- like profound and uh, I was about to say, you know, and I know this is a, an area of like your study and your experience. I was about to say it's a profound and almost inconceivable shift to move from a materialist model to an ideological model. But in fact, it's sort of not because as you know, you now know Harari's book illustrates for hundreds of thousands of years, we lived in tribal totemic models of reality which perhaps reductively we now regard as primitive without acknowledging that material progress and scientific progress in some areas has been if not yeah i would say at the expense of a kind of spiritual evolution which is more difficult to measure and chart perhaps even impossible to chart using the metrics and barometers available to us materialistically and sensorially or centrally i don't know like but unless it's it's kind of clear to me that unless there's an incorporation of this type of understanding a kind of method a modern mythos a modern mythos awoken you know like in plain terms it ain't that long ago we still have the hardware we still have the capacity and i feel that this is what is required this is what's required i'm aware that when you said that thing mate about like a sort of a friendly central authority you know what did you say and marcuse's model a, a, a rational authority as opposed to irrational authority which is broadly centralized and it's pretty obvious to see what kind of relationships between government are and big business and media and how these things coalesce and operate these kind of things are plain and obvious and even with most people i don't know about most people a lot of people understanding that still not an easy thing to challenge what i feel like often i think about is like from the attitude that i get when talking to even people like science educators not even i'm not even talking about scientists although brian cox does have a you know phd i mean he is an astronomer and everything he knows totally knows the score cosmologist or whatever he is i'm not saying he's not a proper scientist he's legit but like what i get from it he did once say if you can't measure it it isn't there he did once say that in a podcast with me and like also that the kind of what i get is a kind of presumptiveness that is no different from when people said the earth is flat or these groups of people are different from one another or this is impossible or the earth goes or the sun goes around the earth you know all, all of those frontiers were um ink uh, what do i want to say sort of offered and um believed in with the same kind of uh easy zeal and a certainty that people today would say no, there aren't different domains and realms of consciousness that you can access, and there aren't. No, and when you said the thing right at the beginning about the, your iboga experience and that that um, shaman or whatever the appropriate word is in that culture saw 
you know, or saw or somehow felt or experienced the psychic energy of a, of a dead ancestor. You know, if you live your whole life attuned to those kind of myths and present with those kind of ideas, who knows what faculties and facilities are open to you. And like when people talk about Pacific Islanders being able to navigate using currents and thermals and movements of birds and fish. I mean, these are all material sensory pieces of information. But I always feel that the Rishis, the Sufis, the sages and the shaman are able to get to knowledge via a different route. And we are foreclosed on that possibility, meaning that the only route to knowledge is this way. And that leads to, we now see, individualism, materialism, consumer, consumerism, and ultimately a kind of, uh, what do we call it? Like a, when it's in the murder of the earth, a kind of terracide. I don't know what the word is. But like, um, you know... So it's almost like it's like that's one of the things I'm enjoying about that Castro book that I'm reading is it's like it's necessary to create this myth and it's necessary to find a way where we believe that what is true in allegory is more true than what can is literally true but it's just inaccessible in the sort of the within the grammar of literalism. Yeah, and then also I mean, you know, if we begin to reach this understanding that somehow reality is a uh, much more um kind of in resonance with uh, levels of consciousness or, or you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, so you have like an indigenous culture, like, you know, the Kogi or the Sequoia who spent like thousands of years in a, you know, immersed in a particular natural environment, like, discover, you know, developing this kind of like intense harmonic relationship with, with their environment. Uh, and they have developed a totally different hermeneutics, you know, of the world and within their hermeneutics, things may be possible that within our structure are not possible. You know, like uh, when, I, when I was with the Sequoia, for instance, they, they said, you know, these are you know, these old guys who, you know, grew up kind of uncontacted. Like they said that, yeah, like it used to be the case that um, if somebody had like a new illness in their community, they would go into this trance, they would drink ayahuasca, they would like sing, you know, for nights and nights. And finally the shaman would look down at his hand and he would have like a seed or like a little sprout in his hand of like a plant they'd never seen before. And they would uh, bury that plant and the plant would be a medicinal plant that would like treat that condition, you know? And um, I always felt that that was the case. Like that he was just telling me something that happened, you know, um, that, that that was the depth of their relationship in their natural environment. I mean, so, so, for, so, so yeah, for, for, the, for these other cultures that develop, in, in a very different uh, way than ours have, you know, much more, let's say, right brain, much more uh, intuitive, you know, much more, you know, interconnected, with a whole different language structure, different phenomenology. Uh, it may be that, you know, extremely uh, profound things are, are possible that we can't even uh, conceive of locked into the sort of um, rational, rational, you know, materialistic construct, which, as you say, only perceives the measurable as real, you know. What attracted you to uh, writers like uh, Darren Allen and Mark Fisher, like English intellectuals? How come you start getting into that stuff? And what is it you're looking for in that work? Well, I had written a book, uh, How Soon Is Now, that came out in uh, 2016, I think. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'd written the, this book 2012, The Return of Kessel Bottle, that came out in like 2006. That was like briefly a bestseller, 2007. Uh, that was very, you know, metaphysical. It actually already had the sort of idealism idea, although not presented as logically uh, fully, uh, comprehensively as Castro does. Uh, and then I was like, okay, like, how do I apply, you know, understanding that we're in this, you know, if I accept 
that I, I, you know, I think it's quite possible that these indigenous cultures who talk about this as a prophetic time of transformation are speaking the truth and we're seeing this massive ecological disruption, this acceleration of technologies of communication and control, uh, this like integration of all the world's like esoteric traditions and so on. You know, so, so what, what, what do we do? Because, um, you know, we're on, on one level, you know, it looks like we're heading straight for extinction, you know, what, what, where, where's the interrupt button, you know? So how soon as now was my effort that actually took me like 10 years to try to like map out almost like if you were an extraterrestrial and you were like looking at the earth and humans, and you were like able to be like, okay, guys, like, you know, you have to like do this and not do that and, and recreate, you know, your social systems in certain ways and rethink your economy and, and, you know, redirect your technical capacities but that book kind of hit like a, a dead zone in, in the culture. There was just no receptivity for it for whatever reason. Uh, so I, I was fascinated when I discovered Mark Fisher uh, because I, and I, I was sad that I didn't get into contact with him around that time because, um, you know, when you look at capitalist realism, you know, which is more diagnosis, which is there's been a number of diagnoses that are sort of similar, although he's very eloquent and he's brilliant with the pop cultural kind of references and so on. But then he was also working on something called the acid communism, where he was beginning to see that this juncture of like the sort of ecstatic experience, uh, the, you know, the breakdown of, um, you know, self and other kind of experience you could have through psychedelics, if that was given a political and social function, or uh, it could lead to something transformative, you know? So I felt like actually, yeah, we, we just missed each other, but, um, you know, and, and then, uh, Darren Allen, yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in the anarcho-primitive perspective. I th I don't agree with it because I think it's it's kind of too cruel in a way because it would require such a mass uh, loss of life to imagine, you know, breaking breaking things down to that level uh, right now. But uh, I think there's some you know some some deep truths that 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 he and um, you know Paul Kingsdorf and some of these other guys are getting at. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been watching some of that, dude. <sighs> Man, it's hard to find people that can talk cohesively and are willing to be open. It's such an extraordinary time for that kind of conversation, isn't it, mate? Um, there's. I just want to uh, ask as well about some of the. You know, I know Buckminster Fuller is a hero of yours. What do you think there is in Fuller's work, uh, broadly? You know, in terms of his approach to solution you know like problem solving and 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 specifically in the work is there stuff you think that should that is um relevant important and necessary for us yeah it's actually been a few years now that i haven't gone back to a uh, fuller and uh uh but uh i mean i thought that you know he, he wrote one book called utopia or oblivion and he believed that if humanity was to sort of get its act together uh, and, and point in the direction of, um, you know, collaboration and so on, you know, we, we could actually, you know, re, re, reinvent ourselves in, uh, in a, you know, comparatively utopian way. Um, he, um, he talked about the necessity of, of generalists, you know, that uh, the way our their society works is uh, people succeed by becoming hyper specialists, you know, so somebody is like, a biologist who specializes just on this, you know, tiny little part of a gene and its functionality or, you know, one species in a forest and so on. And, and we don't have enough people who like try to like step way back to um, look at how the whole system is operating, um, which he was, I think, brilliant at. So that's, I kind of took, took from him kind of uh, what's the kind of um, 
you know, the, the sense that uh, it was a good idea to, uh, to, to not be so specialist. And I, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm on the point of driving myself to near insanity because I try to track so many things, um, you know, from now, like all the stuff that's happening in blockchain, you know, to this hermetic philosophy, to anarchi- anarchism. Uh, but um, to me, it's like, feels like the only way to think is to somehow keep pushing all these different edges and try to try to figure out what the synthesis is. Was there anything specifically or particular in Buckminster the Fuller's that you feel like, whether it's from like architecture and design or just philosophical, we think, well, you know, so th- is that your main take home that we should become generalists, that people should have an understanding of a variety of disciplines that if they are continually discreet, then it, cr- it sort of ossifies in some way? Yeah, there were many other things, but I feel like I'm, I'm, it's been a few years. Sometimes when things fade back into the distance for me, I don't have them like right at the tip of my fingers anymore. But yeah, this sort of comprehensive design thinking. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who runs the Butler Fuller Institute in the U.S. They work with all of these design scientists, and uh, they're all taking different aspects of Fuller. I mean, I, I guess you know, working with nature's principles—that's mm. that's another big aspect. of so biomimicry stuff like that com- comes out of Fuller's approach. Um, yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, I, I found him fascinating around you know, architecture design. He was, uh, you know, he noticed that uh, we were building everything with right angles, like mm-hmm. squares and rectangles and concrete blocks. And he noticed that nature actually never uses a rectangle or, or a block. So he developed a whole different architectural modality using uh, triangles, hexagons, geodesic domes, and so on. Uh, I think that's quite fascinating also. What about McKenna? Is it like uh, Terence McKenna? Do you still read, think about, or like, are you intrigued by Terence McKenna? A lot of people think, you know, he says so much crazy stuff, but I really, I enjoy him enormously still. Was he uh, like a hero of yours? Is he someone you look into? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I would say that I've been more focused on somebody. I think you've talked to a few times, Rupert Sheldon. Yeah. Uh, recently, just because he's, uh, yeah, he's so amazing. But I mean, a few ideas from McKenna are, you know, basic, you know, foundational for me. I mean, you know, including this idea that culture is not our friends, you know, that culture is actually an enemy. Because uh, as soon as something becomes a culture, it becomes like, you know, kind of a, a construct that everybody just, you know, sort of conforms to. You know, that's what I've like, you know, at first I was extremely enthusiastic about the Burning Man Festival. And there are many things about it that I think are still quite good. But over time, I, be- I began to feel it became more of a uh, culture that people would just conform to. They would look at Instagram. They would see how everybody dressed. They would dress that way. They would go to the certain places where the certain DJ was playing at a certain time. So instead of it actually being about uh, really exercising freedom in this totally creative free space where everything was kind of like unmapped, people brought in, brought in their cultural mapping and, and just, just you know, did that. And, and so it began to be very disappointing to me. Uh, this whole idea that, um, you know, the alien or the extraterrestrial might, uh, you know, kind of uh, communicate with us in a very different way. Like his, his idea that psilocybin might actually be a form of extraterrestrial consciousness that has uh, distributed around the galaxy as spores on meteorites that crash the planets and wait for a mammal like ourselves to develop a complex central nervous system and then teach us how to you know, think and, you know, and, and uh, play and all that stuff. And, th- and then make another level of uh, symbiotic relationship with us to get us out to the stars and to the next levels. I think I love that idea very much. And it still resonates with me greatly. But I also really love Jose Arguelles, who, who's far more forgotten and uh, sort of um, kind of eclipsed than McKenna. 
Uh, Jose was one of the big thinkers around uh, 2012 and the Mayan calendar. He actually created a, uh, a different calendar, kind of taking the principles from the Mayan calendar, uh, and he called it the Dream Spell calendar. Uh, and it was like an art project. I mean, one thing I loved about it was um, well, part of his argument is that um, kind of uh, the, the calendar is much more important than we give it credit for, that it kind of... Um, shapes consciousness. It's like a consciousness control device, you know, so we know when holidays are, we have to pay taxes on a certain date, we go to school on a certain date, we pay, you know, so debts are all scheduled along the, around the calendar. So if you had like a different calendar on different principles, that would also be a way to uh, transform people's consciousness potentially in a, in a really uh, amazing way. You know? Yeah, it seems like that what you're continually looking for is innovative and marginal thinkers and how these ideas can be brought to the mainstream but even the burning burning man example do does it, it was a question i suppose does it suggest that there is almost some uh external force imposing will do you think that burning man ultimately is subject to the same commercial and capitalist interests that we're seeing playing out in all other areas of society do you think there was ever anything unique about it and do you think that there's a kind of a kind of um what do i want to say an unavoidable telos that the that the burning man example shows playing out interesting question i mean uh you know the, the i think the world is a lot better because things like burning man exist and it has given a lot of people you know tre tremendous new sense of possibility and also it's a, it's a teacher i mean you know, one of the things that Burning Man teaches us is how quickly human, what we call human nature, can change uh, if you're given like a different set of conditions. You know, so essentially there's like, you know, Burning Man has a set of principles that you agree to abide by, like uh, leave no trace. You know, everybody is a participant. It's a gift economy. No money is used, um, you know, and so on. And uh, so people automatically shift into these principles and they find that um, it makes their experience like much more beautiful and, and their ability to connect with other people much more special. And, um, you know, it just gives us a sense of how, um, yeah, you know, with different principles, different things become instantly possible. Like it's almost like we're waiting without knowing it for like a better game, you know, in a way. Yeah. So so I think it's very important. So how did it become, how did the sort of more ordinary contemporary experience become mapped on it? How did you become, how have you become more cynical about it? What is it that you experienced? What was lost and what it developed? You know, yeah, how I mean, could it not sustain? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, you know, I actually didn't, I haven't gone back for a few years for various reasons. Last year, there wasn't an official Burning Man, but there were still people went and they had like a sort of, you know, guerrilla Samizdat Burning Man. I heard it was way better. And, and I imagine it was, I think one problem with Burning Man became kind of like an institutional structure uh, that was sort of, you know, making, you know, making money off of it, preserving, you know, kind of, the, you know, their power in a strange way. Um, and then you had all these people coming in, like much more elite people. It sort of became like, uh, you know, uh, you know, you'd have like, you know, royalty, you know, the top celebrities, you know, the top people from all the companies and so on. So it developed a sort of elite privileged hierarchy kind of aspect to it, you know, even though it was supposed to be sort of non-hierarchical. Um, and, um, and then also the, the fact that they allowed cell phones, like the first years I was there, there was no cell phone reception. So, you know, you would just have to totally be in this free flow. Uh, but now people go and there's like a selfie culture and, and, uh, Instagram and people can communicate by cell phone. So a lot of the, um, I think that really cut into, 
the uniqueness of that experience. Yes, and I suppose the fact that it was originally so enjoyable indicates that we kind of require a space outside of our culture, that we require it. We require some kind of enclave, some kind of escape. And I suppose it's disappointing that these things can't be used as a kind of crucible for, um, for potentially new ways of communicating and... I think they, it is that. I mean, it still is that. I mean, you know, and I, I'm just, um, you know, I don't want to be too negative. I gained so much from that experience. Right. But yeah, you're, you're sort of touching on the idea of the temporary autonomous zone, right? You know that idea? Yeah. From the, uh, Hakim Bay, the Taz, uh, pirate utopias that, yeah, I mean, I mean, that can, I mean, that's, you know, I guess in some ways they're harder to find these days because everything does get kind of pulled into the, the capitalist structure, you know, so quickly, you know. What have you taken mostly from the pandemic, Daniel? What has it made you feel about? I, well, you know, there's so many areas to cover, but I don't mean particularly with efficacy or medical products. I mean primarily with regulation, authoritarianism, conformity, um, trust of authority, diversity. Uh, 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 cultural divisions what kind of what is it inspired or provoked in you uh that's a great question i mean i'm still in an inquiry around it you know and and, and i keep revisiting it in, in writing and, and i don't feel uh totally coherent about my thoughts around it actually i mean um you know obviously you know, power works, you know, whatever happens, like Naomi Klein wrote about, you know, the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. So, you know, when, when big changes happen, you know, you know, those structures of power, you know, make use of those, those changes for their own benefit. And, you know, there were a lot of things that were sort of waiting in the wings that, you know, maybe a certain, you know, the world economic forum, Davos, kind of, kind of, you know, power elite, had wanted to implement or had dreamed of implementing, and suddenly they use this as an incredible opportunity. Uh, and yeah, we can see that it looks like it's going to be very difficult to kind of, you know, roll back uh, things. You know, like uh, it looks like you know the, the booster shots every six months are um, you know going to become it's going to become very difficult to to avoid that if you want to live a, a normal life. Um, you know, unless the data ultimately is overwhelming that they're actually uh, more of a negative than a positive. Uh, and similarly, these, you know, vaccine passports, IDs, um, more border control. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it all seems pretty terrible and, and, and uh, depressing. Yes, I suppose when, like, like you say, that's an interesting example, like the you know Naomi Klein in the book Shock Doctrine, which also was turned into a documentary, I think, by Michael Winterbottom, talked about how American imperialism in Latin America often required either the manufacture of a a, a disaster of some kind, or would simply take advantage of a naturally occurring disaster in order to implement measures that were advantageous to pre-existing systems and I suppose Naomi Klein is so sort of um, integral to leftist thinking because of like no logo and a lot of her writing it's been interesting for me to observe how the left in particular has responded to this crisis and it makes me sometimes query the depth 
of the principles that are often used to underwrite what we would refer to now as leftist liberalism if they are not adhered to or practiced, if they're not practiced or even contemplated or discussed under particular conditions. Yeah, I totally feel the same way. I mean, uh, it's 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 been fascinating. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's very hard for our minds. Like, we want there to be uh, you know, right and wrong, you know, black or white, you know, dichotomies, and it's very hard for our minds to deal uh, with things that that are sort of very ambiguous. Um, and uh, this situation, you know, is is I think very ambiguous. It, re- it requires a lot of uh, you know processing power mentally just to hold hold, hold it all together. But yeah, I mean. Because on the one hand, like when I came back to New York after living in Mexico for a while, I actually found something kind of like touching about how, you know, all the liberals and progressives were kind of had banded together around like vaccinations. And I felt there was like a human sense of like wanting to protect each other, protect the old and protect life that I actually found kind of beautiful in a way. On the other hand, it shaded into this kind of like authoritarian control system uh, I mean, I, I was very interested in um, this philosopher uh, Giorgio Agamben, uh, who has written a number of essays about uh, biosecurity, uh, biopower, uh, and uh, how essentially, you know, and you know, most of the traditional left and the liberal, you know, progressive kind of community is, is still, you know, mainly in that materialist worldview. Once again, we go back to that, uh, and so when you're when you're coming from that framing. Then, then life itself, you know, what, what Agamemnon talks about is bare life is like the ultimate value, right? Because, you know, that's it. Like once you're dead, you're gone anyway, it's all over. So, so the protection of life, you know, protection of life at its edges, you know, you know, kind of continu- continuity of life till it's absolute, even if you're in your nineties and, you know, hundred and you're gasping on an iron lung, just keep, keep the life going. It's kind of embedded in, in, in this framework. I and mean, this is where, like Darren Allen is like super provocative in, in some of his writings on, on, on the coronavirus. And he's just like, you know, this quantification around, you know, life expectancy and wanting everyone to live and so on. It's just kind of another aspect of, of the system. You know, and I, it's hard for me to go that far. I mean, I have an 86 year old mother, you know, I want to see her have as much life as she possibly can. I mean, she just wrote an amazing essay for the New York Review of Books about, you know, growing up in the Second World War. Like she's still thinking and going and it's awesome, you know, that, that, that that's the case. So it's very complicated. It's very, very ambiguous. And um, I'm, I'm reading RFK's book on Fauci right now. Uh, I read this other book, Pseudo Pandemic, uh, that I wrote about a little bit, um, you know, constantly trying to figure out, I mean, I, you know, there is a part of me that suspects that, um, you know, nefarious deeds underlying this, that, that this was not simply you know, totally accidental that they were developing bioweapons, and then both the Chinese military were very interested in the development of uh, bioweapons and engineering viruses uh, as as, uh, large scale killers, you know, and, and, um, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's hard to think so, you know, poorly of, you know, people that they could be that, you know, sociopathic or psychopathic. And, and yet, you know, history has shown us that that's the case. And, and that often when people are in hierarchical power structures and they fight their way to the top of those pyramids, it's because they have uh, the least amount of moral compunction, the least amount of conscience, uh, no caring about you know, 
externalities like, uh, you know, local communities or, or local ecosystems and so on. So, you know, it, it is conceivable to me that uh, there, there's, a, there's a very dark undercurrent um, of what's happening and, you know, and, and that's, that's not knowledge of that is distributed unevenly, you know, um, you know, it's not, I don't think it's like Bill Gates would think that, you know, that's what's happening, you know, but, but, but it could still be the case that there, that there's some other agency involved. And then, you know, somebody who has an occult or esoteric perspective looks at it also from another angle. I mean, um, Rudolf Steiner is like one of my great heroes. And, um, you know, what, one reason that I was really excited about Bernardo Castrop's uh, book about more than allegory and talking about a hermeneutics of everything is for years, I've been like, there's something so incredible about Steiner. I mean, he has issues. I mean, he was, he had some of the racist tendencies of the 19th century and, and so on, but um, he essentially was a visionary who from an early age could apparently see into other dimensions and other worlds and um, uh, could, could track, you know, people, old karmic histories back to like past incarnations and so on. And um, essentially his whole work is, is, is his effort to create a hermeneutics of everything. Uh, and uh, he talks about, he, 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 you know, he, he calls himself an esoteric Christian and he talks about these different kind of spiritual forces and powers that he believes kind of work on humanity in different ways. So rather than just, they're just being like the devil, he talks about these sort of negative forces, you know, in the astral world that, uh, you know, sort of want to use human energy and human potential for their own purposes. And uh, he talks about them as uh, the, the, you know, two, two, two of the main kind of forces that he defines. And obviously this is like in a, you know, it's just a mapping. It's not like, I'm not saying this is the answer or whatever, but I think it's useful for me anyway, very useful. He talks about the aramonic and the luciferic. Uh, and so, you know, Lucifer is a term that literally means like light bringer. So Lucifer and Steiner had a ma magazine called Lucifer Gnosis. So Lucifer is a very positive spur to human evolution to a certain extent. So it's a, a class of being, and he really even defines like stuff about how they exist, these other realities and so on, who, um, Basically, that we we can make you know kind of connections with them, and they lead us towards like genius, uh, towards you know beauty, uh, but also kind of away from the human realm towards like arrogance and hubris, and uh, and also sort of in that way lead us maybe towards a destructive path. And then this other group of spiritual beings he talked about is the Aramonic. Uh, Aramon is the uh, I think it's Zoroastrian kind of evil earth spirit. Uh, so these are a class of beings who are leading us down towards uh, sort of materialism, uh, sterility, uh, materiality, uh, minerality, technology. And so, so Steiner believed that we were like, we had these, these Luciferic beings kind of pulling us up and away. And this, uh, this aromatic uh, energy is pulling us down uh, and, and into sort of sterility. And sort of the purpose of human existence is to, is to walk the, the, the line in between. And that's actually what he felt that, that Christ existed to do, was to show us how to walk, you know, between those, those energies in a way. But, but, but uh, Steiner also said that in, in this century, the 21st century, it was going to be the, uh, the, the sort of fulfillment of Araman. Uh, he talked about it as the incarnation of Araman, that just had, as Christ had uh, incarnated, you know, 2000 years ago, uh, as the sort of avatar of like human individuality and kind of centeredness and balance in the 21st century, the, the Aramonic being was going to incarnate into our human reality. It would be a, a, a incredible transformation for humanity. 
And for me, when, when he associates Ahriman with technology and sort of sterile materiality, that is actually seems like an incredibly powerful, you know, kind of tool for thinking about what's happening. It's almost like there's a, you know, consciousness or spiritual consciousness in technology and artificial intelligence and biotechnology. It's like we're being moved towards this, uh, this, this sort of confrontation with the, uh, this Ahrimanic uh, consciousness in a way. Well, that's real cool. And also, <laughs> not, not if it happens, it would be horrible. But like, I like that. Steiner said it's inevitable. I mean, it is going to happen. Oh, don't worry. Relax and drift into it. But I like the uh, sort of pantheonistic kind of idea of ulterior forces guiding reality and all things being imbued with a form of consciousness or spirit. It's kind of uh, Olympian in a way that there are these raw energies or perhaps refined, but sort of in terms of our ability to appreciate them inaccessible through the senses, but nevertheless present. I suppose that one of the pathways I find myself <laughs> ambling down is that kind of... Oh, sorry, sorry, but I just wanted to finish the one little thought, which is that, um, sure. you know, when we look at all these things that are sort of murky and ambiguous around the virus, the authoritarianism, mm. you know, it, it may be that behind the scenes and the invisible shadows, there is this kind of like aromatic will, you know, that's pulling us. Mm. So, so it's not so much about, you know, individual human agency. There's something even beneath that, you know, anyway, so go, so go ahead. No, I get you because how would we, how would we possibly know or have the uh, utensils to examine that were it so the area that i find myself returning to a lot is you know campbell as a sort of a point of entry and jung this idea that there is a kind of language a grammar a tale and a myth expressing itself from beneath what is um a pl plainly discernible like do you know like sometimes i watch a a pretty inoffensive and um, um, remarkable yet hardly intellectual cultural artifact like the movie Grease and sit watching it thinking, oh, I see that the divine feminine and sacred masculine must ally but in order for that to occur, they need to break away from the tethers of their social confines, the cultural limitations of their sets, in order to achieve the kind of necessary synthesis, which may a million miles away from what you've just said about Steiner's interpretation of the Christian myth, that, that there is some sort of imprint continually sort of pushing at us like do you remember in the 90s when the novelty shops you would get a thing where you'd push your hand in it and all pins would take the shape of your hand you know like that there's a second reality pushing through at us reaching into us and that you know that thing in the back of our guitar that that we on like you know that reality is this net and each place where the threads cross there is a node of consciousness a point of attention and um, I feel that, you know, as, as that, that there's, yes, that, that our apparent separateness is an illusion that it, it, it is sustained by the limitation of our senses. And were we able to experience reality as it is, we would see that, as McKenna said, beneath the water of separation is one interconnected land, one interconnected land mass. And 
you know, it's interesting because so many potentially contradictory ideas have to be simultaneously held like a autonomous individual freedom, the rights of the individual, the necessity of the collective suspicion around globalism, but with the potential that sort of some kind of centralized global force could be a positive rather than a negative thing. And each time there's one of these divisive issues gets flung up, Trump or Brexit or, you know, coronavirus, that we sort of partition along pre-existing cultural lines rather than investigating the possibility that there could be beneath these somewhat arbitrary tribal divisions the opportunity for new unifying ideas and and that would bloody well come from the stuff that seems to fascinate you and me the potential that there is something within us that, that prevented that we are prevented from seeing by one of those William James veils ever present. You know, just sometimes you know I know you've got lots to us to say. I can see it, mate. But like um, like sometimes when I do these guided meditations, like um, I feel that what I'm like I find myself saying like you're already there like i feel myself beginning to appreciate stuff that's always present in like you know spirituality but sometimes feels a bit gnostic or vague and like when they go you're already the enlightenment is there it's happening now you're already in it but you just have to allow it and I, i'm starting to feel these things unfold in myself anyway i see you've got a lot to say daniel hit me with it man oh no no i was appreciating i was i was enjoying <laughs> that that rip um, well, I, I was just—I mean, I'm, I'm a little excited right now. I mean, I, this book, "Inventing the Future," got me excited. I mentioned it before, but okay. they, they propose that um, for the uh, left to kind of uh, you know win some victory, you know, in a way, uh, it has to—it has to organize a counter hegemonic project uh, that has to have a pretty simple goal, you know, in the way that Trump talked about, you know, build the wall or drain the swamp. Uh. Uh, what they propose is the organizing around the idea of a post-work uh, society, mm. and uh, so that would you know be something fully like, automated you know, luxury communism. What's that? Fully automated exactly. luxury. Yeah, communism. Exactly, yeah. But I think I think this this idea is a really powerful one because uh, yeah, we know that uh, you know although the ecological crisis is, is changing some of the you know dynamics, you know we we have enough food to feed everybody. You know, we, we have enough resources to take care of everybody. I mean, we could just start uh, from that. Like, like what, what if people, and, and if people don't, you know, so the only reason that we're in this, you know, clusterfuck mm, mm, is because mm. it serves the interest of the powerful, cool, right? Cool, I mean, cool. um, you know, if, if, uh, if people have to slave away at like subhuman wages, that allows Jeff Bezos to, you know, make another billion dollars an hour or something like that, you know? So, so you know, if you have, and if people had a, a basic, you know, income, if they didn't have to work to survive, then um, the whole price of work would change because mm -hmm. labor that, you know, like taking care of autistic kids or, you know, working in a hospice, like, you know, people who do that work should get paid, you know, very, very well. Um, you know, and that would be the case if everybody had a basic uh, income. I that's think, cool, you know? Daniel. That's cool because, like, if you think about it, all this like stuff that's in the on the ether in the news about like new like union movements and strikes and people walking out of jobs. That's sort of like that's present. That's pushing through. Then, like, even ideas which I feel I don't know. I feel they're too sort of bloody mainstream or they're too you know the universal basic income. Like that sort of idea is sort of like being presented now. But so. If you to present, because I like with Trump's ones, they're all kind of like drain the swamp. Oh, three words. Build a wall. Cool. They're like, you know, there's people that's just on the left, which is still where I consider myself to be, like are so reluctant to sort of go, that dude 
communicated well. They're so busy with the demonization, the vilification, the, the sort of focus on the many evident and obvious flaws the guy had. Like to, with, to not acknowledge, firstly, you're yielding and ceding all of this territory because of your own hollow, shallow, empty ideologies. And secondly, he's funny. You know, yeah. There's just two things you've got to address instantly. Um, so, like, um, you know, thinking about that, I like we saying about like no more, no more work because who does really want to work? Oh me, I'm a workaholic. <laughs> me, I I like it, but then I'm a vocational uh, dharma guy, you know. Well, yeah. So, so basically, when you bring up the idea, you know, I, I've been talking about it recently, and, and a lot of people are like, you know, work is what makes life meaningful. Um, you know, and I understand that. I understand there's like, you know, we come from like the Protestant work ethic, like a lot of people that, you know, believe in, you know, so, so, you know, I think that, um, it would, you know, this is what they talk about in the book, Inheriting, Investing, Inventing the Future. It would take a little ideological, it's almost like it needs a marketing campaign for people to relax, but like, okay, like, um, it's okay. You know, if somebody's just wants to hang out with their kids for a while or, you know, hang out with their 86 year old mother, like that's, their choice like society kind of handle that you know they're they're not going to have you know money to eat at like a fancy restaurant maybe or whatever but you know let, let's let them do that but I, I think what would happen and this is actually they've done a ubi study recently in stockdale california they just gave people 500 dollars a month you know which not very much but they found that over like a year or two you know they were actually working they, they got better jobs because they didn't feel so desperate and their mental health problems dissolved you know so actually they became far more productive and together members of society it's just this constant nagging anxiety and insecurity that, that that's hovering over under under most people's lives is, is actually very debilitating so i think if you took that away it's not that people wouldn't want to work or or, or or contribute they would actually suddenly be able to work or contribute in valuable ways because the fact is that most of the work that people are, are doing is work that shouldn't get done yeah and the that we need to get done are not getting done yeah you know, well, like we, we need we need for instance to to, to take away industrial farms and turn them into uh, permaculture, regenerative yeah. farms that are much smaller scale and require much more, you know, kind of um, particular labor, you know, that, that people have to relearn. You know, we need to insulate all the cities so that we're not wasting so much energy. You know, we need to have like rooftop gardens so food doesn't have to travel like thousands and thousands of miles, you know. So, so you know, we, we need to liberate people from shit work so they can actually do the real work that would allow us to have a future together, you know. Yes. Yes, yes. And like one of the um, uh, clear epiphanies available that granted by the pandemic was 80 to 90 percent of all work can immediately stop. And it doesn't yeah. make any fucking difference because it's unnecessary, uh, self-sustaining loops of needless yeah. consumption. Yeah, that's that's cool. All right. There's a lot to think about there. I'm going to a church to lead a meditation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm out there teaching meditation to Christians. Very cool. So that's that's where that's where I'm going this evening. It's lovely to speak to you, Daniel. Yeah, good to hang out, buddy. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel Pinchbeck. What you're scrabbling at now, Jen? Nothing. <laughs> Is the nose the ass of the face? No. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, we what? Hold on. Let's see what Jen's written in what she calls a script. Uh, thanks for listening to Under the Skin. You know, if you like it, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Dash. Tag me at Russell Brand. Now, that's a good use of a dash. Thank you. Let me know if you thought of it on Instagram. 
dash tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag under skin tour underlined green for some reason I'm it's going nice. on tour hmm? it's a nice change it is a nice change I always feel happy when I see that I'm going on tour in 2022 go to russellbrand.com sort of and then it's like in a linky thing it's blue and underlined waste of blue ink what? for the de- what waste of blue ink <laughs> <laughs> when's it ever going to be used <laughs> for more links <laughs> Waste of blue ink, that, Jen. No. Yeah. Uh, the dates and to get tickets. Above the noise, black underlined. My meditation podcast, Above the Noise, is on Luminary 2. There will be new guided medita- meditation released each Wednesday. Sign up to my community at russellbrand.com. The part of the under this, Above the Noise is going really well. Did you know that? Yes. How? Because Luminary said it was. Because Luminary said it was. How did you know? Uh... Luminary said it was. Yeah. Uh, go to my community, sign up to my community at russellbrand.com and like be on the mailing list. You'll get like a mailing list email. It's nice. And I'd like talk to you. I've got to start doing those Zooms again, Jen. Do you? Yeah, so hard. But like I do enjoy, I've got to look, what we're probably going to start is like a new ways of advancing all this stuff. We've got Subi in there now. Subi's uh, head of social media. She'll come up with ideas, won't she? Yeah. All right. In the meantime, if you... Right, I can't wait. This is my favourite bit each week. If you enjoyed this conversation, why not check out some other episodes? Merlin Sheldrake. Why, Jen? Because you think new ways of thinking. Or Bruce Parry. Why, Jen? Why tribes, Bruce Parry? Tribes and tribes, shamanism. Tribes. And psychedelics. Wasn't it a bit think... of psychedelics, wasn't it, a little bit? I think there's a bit of that. Why, yeah. When are you thinking these thoughts? When I'm writing the script. You sit there talking, and then it I out. sing for it. I even asked Annabelle earlier. I was like, Annabelle, who, who will I put? And she thought Merlin as well, but I'd already written Merlin. Really? How about Merlin Sheldrake? She went. Yeah. See. That's fair enough. Yeah. And keep checking out my YouTube channel for new, <laughs> for new videos. And thank you for listening to me, Russell Brand, on Under the Skin from Luminary. And I would like to thank everyone over at Luminary for their great work. Jamie, Mark, who else do we Kyle. like? I love him. Mm-hmm. In jiu-jitsu just now, Jen, I banged the ball of my foot on the wooden floor by the mat. Chris, my teacher, flipped me round and my foot's sort of like... The ball of your foot? The ball of That's it. That's okay, isn't it? That's like the sturdiest bit. Hmm. You see the ball is sturdy? Yeah. Well, the ball is sturdy, yeah. But, <laughs> but Jen, this is like it was banged down so hard. Jen, it's banged hard. Yeah. Yeah, it hurts. Like it's as if it's Can bruised. You walk? Yeah, and when I start to put pressure on it, like as soon as I hurt myself in jiu-jitsu, that's all I can think about for the rest of jiu-jitsu. Ow. I think. Do you not like it a bit? There are certain types of pain. Say it's like a bit of like, say someone's choked you or, you, I don't know, something like, oh, your jaw hurts. Then jaw? You, can... that you like jaw pain? I don't like the <laughs> But at least it's in a reasonable place because you've been choked or something. This ball of the foot pain, it's like just, it feels like something that shouldn't hurt. Like a cramp in your foot. They're weird, aren't they? Yeah. I'm all cramps. I'm against cramps. Are you? <laughs> Although it's clearly got some connection to spasm, and spasm is orgasm, so yeah. you'd think it would be nice, but it's not. No. Like, no one wants to be gripped in cramps. Although I've done these breath exercises before that make your arms go, Oh, like, you said that, yeah. It's kind of great. No? I don't know. Because if we all go to Lanzarote... Uh. Why are you against Lanzarote? Annabelle, I saw that! <laughs> I don't think she wants to spasm in front of the work colleagues. She, oh, yeah, she hates breathing. She doesn't want to spasm <laughs> in front of her work colleagues. Everyone's got their eyes shut. I was looking at Annabelle's spasms. All right. <laughs> okay, we should end and do Above the Noise. I mean, this is appallingly yeah. lax. Right, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>